My name's Rob Gentile. I grew up in a small steel town in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. My parents were Italian immigrants, and when I was five years old, my father was uh, killed in a steel mill accident. So when he passed away, I felt like I had lost my identity. There was just tremendous void in my life, and I didn't really know where to go from there. But what had happened to me is that before my father had died, we were in a very, very small two-bedroom house, and my other brothers had one bedroom, and I was in a crib with my parents. I was laying there one night, and all of a sudden came this glowing orb. It was a light that was very unnatural. It wasn't like a light bulb or a light of the moon or anything like that. It was its own kind of light that just seemed to seep through the ceiling. And as it descended, it was this beautiful, just like pulsating, glowing orb. And there I was as a child and I'm laying there watching this. And then all of a sudden it transformed into this hand and this beautiful hand began to just float down slowly. And it just landed in my hand. I remember in my right hand, and it was almost like I absorbed this kind of energy. And I remember jumping up onto my feet and grabbing the rails of the crib and rattling these things and just laughing and laughing and laughing, like with total abandonment, only like a child can do. And I remember my parents waking up and they were probably saying, you know, he's probably having a dream or something and they had gone back to sleep. But after my father passed away, Never again would I sleep with my, my hands wide open and open to the world on my back. I would sleep on my stomach with my hands curled tightly under my chest because I felt that that hand, that light that came to me, was kind of like the only thing I had left to hold on to. And my life, just like any other child, went on, but I always had this sense of kind of like abandonment and wonder of what that light was that had come to me and where I was headed as a, a young person. And I really was kind of lost, uh, particularly I remember even in my teenage years and throughout high school, I was always kind of like a loner, always in search of myself, wondering what it is that uh, I wanted to become. And I was always very, very curious about that light that I had seen as a child. I was always asking my my mother questions about God and our existence and why we were here. And then I was married and I had my first child with my wife, Melanie. And at, I think, age 18 months, we realized that there was something wrong with my daughter, Maria. And as time went on and genetic testing became available, we began to realize that she had a very, very rare neurological disorder called Rett syndrome. It's not that these children are retarded, it's that their brain stops wiring at around 18 months old. So Maria presents like she has severe autism, cerebral palsy, she can't feed herself, she's nonverbal, and she still has to walk with great assistance. So Maria is now 26 years old, and my wife and I have dedicated our lives to trying to, which we still do today, trying to find a cure the seizures are pretty much under control now, but for years and years and years, we lived with a terrifying 
seizure disorder that there were sometimes months on end when my wife and I would be living in the hospital. The only way that they could stop Maria's seizures were with um, phenobarbital IVs that would literally put her in a coma for days. So it's been a very, very difficult journey through these past 26 years with her. And what happened was at age 56 years old, it was on January 26, 2016, I had been having all of this pain in my neck from sports injuries when I was younger. And it was determined that I had these bone spurs on my neck that were pinching my nerves and giving me all of this pain. So I had got all this testing done and these bone spurs had to come out. So we found a doctor in Pittsburgh who does this special surgery called a foraminal anatomy. And he goes in through the front and he makes this very small cut in the neck and moves the esophagus aside and drills out these bone spurs. It's a very simple surgery. I was only in the hospital for one night. And then my wife drove me back to North Carolina, where I live now. But what happened was, three nights later in my bed, at about 11.30, 12 o'clock at night, I threw a blood clot. And we know now it went right into my Widowmaker. All of a sudden, my wife is, you know, turning on the lights, trying to figure out what's going on. I'm flopping around in the bed, screaming in pain. And then I passed out from the pain. My wife calls 911, the ambulance arrived. They rushed me to the hospital. Thank goodness the hospital is only like three miles from my house. But on the way, the ambulance driver knew I was having a massive heart attack. He calls it in, they get me into the ER and they bring me into a room. The cardiologist was not in the hospital at the time. So a nurse comes in and they give me uh, whatever the medicines they give you to thin the blood and, and to calm me down. And I'm still unconscious. And the nurse tells my wife, well, it looks like he's stable. So we're okay. Let's just wait for the cardiologist. And the minute she said that, all of a sudden, as my wife described it, it was kind of like uh, a scene from the movie, The Exorcist. It was almost as if somebody had grabbed me by my shirt and just pulled me forward off the gurney and I sprung forward off the gurney from my waist up and my eyes popped wide open and I screamed out the name Frosty. And then I collapsed backward on the gurney and flatlined. Code blue rang out through the hospital and in rushed this team of doctors. They grabbed my wife and before they took her out of the room, she said to Dr. Patel, the little Indian woman that saved me that night. She said, we have a special needs child and you have to save him because she cannot make it without him and I can't do this alone. So they take my wife out of the room. My wife drops to her knees, began praying out loud to God to save me and they began to work on me. For 20 minutes, I was dead. They did vigorous sternal rubs, multiple paddle shocks. Four times they stuck that needle in my heart and injected epinephrine. They could not get me to come back. But something had compelled Dr. Patel to continue to work on me for some reason. I mean, I'm dead for 20 minutes. She should have called it long ago, you know, I should have been brain dead. But she continued to work on me and work on me until she obtained a very slight pulse. And when she did that, Dr. Bajwa came in, another doctor who is now a friend of mine, the cardiologist, 
He did a catheterization up through my thigh. He found the blockage in my Widowmaker, inserted two stints, but it was too late. I had gone into cardiogenic shock. I was intubated and I drifted into a four-day coma. The neurologists were coming in and out of my room, my wife tells me, to see if I were brain dead. And my oldest brother drove down from Pittsburgh and he called the local parish priest. The parish priest came, anointed me with oil and ashes in what's called uh, extreme unction. In the Catholic faith, you get that one time to get you prepared to meet God. And so I was given my last rites and on the fourth day, they came to my uh, wife and they said, look, we can't wait any longer. We're going to take out the tubes and, you know, we'll see what we have. He's probably a vegetable, but we'll see what happens. So obviously I started choking and I came out of it. And I remember coming out of recovery. The first person that came into my room was my wife, Melanie. She said I was speaking in this really high pitched voice like a child. And I kept on saying, Melanie, you have to believe me. You have to believe me. It was frosty. It was frosty. He came to me and she said, oh my God, that makes so much sense. She said, tell me exactly what frosty said to you. And I said, he said to me, I've made a big mess out of things and you have to go back and help clean things up. But tell my family I'm in a good place. She said, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Only my brother could have said that. He was always making a big mess out of things. And she said, you sprang up off the gurney and you screamed out Frosty's name before you flatlined. You had a massive heart attack. You've been out for four days. So to give you a little bit of a backstory, Frosty was my brother-in-law and was going through a very difficult period in his life. He was going through a divorce and he was living in the upstairs bedroom of his parents' house. And unfortunately, seven weeks before I died that night, Frosty had taken his own life. His mother had called me, it was about 5.30 in the morning, and she'd asked me to come to the house to go up into his room and try to find a journal or a note or anything that would explain why he took his own life. So seven times I went up into that room, picking through a rather gruesome scene, and finally I found a journal and I had given it to the family. And, you know, to this day, I wonder if Frosty had come to me to kind of like prepare me for what was yet to come. It had changed my perception of my religious belief system because being raised Catholic, and I know those rules have changed now, but at the time, being raised Catholic, we were taught that taking one's life was a mortal sin. You went straight to hell. But here Frosty came to me just as clearly as I'm speaking to you and told me that he was in a good place. So that was the first time in my life that there was this huge paradigm shift in my belief system. And then the second day that I came out of coma, it was so extraordinary because there I was, my arms were still paralyzed and this beautiful little Indian woman came up to my bed and she said, hey, I'm Dr. Patel and I'm the one that was working on you that night and she began to tell me how many times she almost lost me and all the things that she had gone through and all of a sudden it got very personal. She began to talk about her father which I thought was odd and she began to cry and she was telling me about her father and she said you know Rob 
My father and I were extremely close, and all he lived for was to see my first child. But six months before my child was born, my father died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. And she said, you know, I'm a Hindu. I have been always very, very spiritual. And ever since that happened, I've been very bitter. I've kind of lost my sense of spirituality. But seeing you here alive, maybe, just maybe, there's something out there because you shouldn't be here. And as she was telling me this, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was like the puzzle unscrambled and there it was. Because besides Frosty coming to me, there was another male spirit that had entered the room while she was working on me. And I could hear this voice over and over again saying the same thing. Keep working on him. Don't give up. You can save him. And then it hit me. It was her father speaking through me, encouraging her to continue to work on me. There's no reason in the world why she should have continued working on me for 20 minutes. I was long gone, but something compelled her to keep working on me. It was just this voice, this continuing voice in the background, repeating those same words over and over and over again. And you know, in that moment, I didn't have the courage to tell her that it was her father speaking through me that was the one next to her telling her to continue to try to save me. It was a year later when I had come back and met her in the hospital cafeteria that I told her about that experience. So after I had been released from the hospital, I went immediately, I went into rehab and they had told me that I could not survive without a heart transplant. My heart was completely destroyed. So before I was released from the hospital, they had fitted me in this defibrillator vest that looked like a policeman's uh, bulletproof vest that they would wear. And every time my heart would fail, which was often, of course, this thing would, you know, shock me back to life. You talk about PTSD, right? Because this thing was always shocking me back. And then the other thing that they did to me because my heart was so weak is that they inserted a port in my chest it was dripping this medicine on my heart every 60 seconds called milrinone. It makes the heart pump, but it starts the clock ticking right away and it wears the heart out very, very fast. But I could not get a heart. Hearts are in short supply. So I went everywhere to try to get a heart. I went everywhere in North Carolina, the clinics here, and what they had to offer me were terrible alternatives. So I was very, very desperate and depressed and I was about to give up. And it turns out that my employer, who I work for, he helped me to get into the University of Chicago Medicine. So I'm going through this whole process of um, getting a, a heart and going through all of these different tests and I'm getting weaker and weaker and weaker through the process. And I'm about 174 pounds and I had atrophied down to like 132 pounds. I was a skeleton of a human being and lo and behold, in the last set of tests, they found out that I had prostate cancer. It was a shock. Dr. Uriel came into my room. He brought like five, six doctors with him because he needed, he needed emotional support, I guess. And he, had, he came into my room and he told me, he said, Rob, I'm sorry, but we found prostate cancer in you and I have to take you off the transplant list. And the only uh, thing that we can do for you now is we're going to have to take the prostate out 
and wait like six months to make sure you're cancer free. So once again, I find myself in this position where I'm abandoned by God and I'm not going to make it. And I never forget, I was in my room and I was on the eighth floor of uh, the University of Chicago Medicine and I had this view of Lake Michigan. It was 10 o'clock at night or something and all of a sudden out of nowhere this storm whips up off the lake and these heavy sheets of rain start slamming against the window and lightning like I've never seen it. And when you're on the eighth floor next to the lake, Lake Michigan, it's like you're, you're in the middle of the ocean, you know? So I started to get really scared and I'm very, very weak. And all of a sudden it was kind of like this dark entity had entered the room. I felt as if something was trying to weaken me. I was being drugged into this darkness, you know? I was a magnet dragging all of this fear, everything that I ever feared, and every mistake that I had ever made in my life. All of these things were flashing before me and I felt myself getting weaker and weaker and weaker. I had had an, an encounter when I was a child of a boy that had a very deformed face when I was walking through the mall with my mother shopping. And I remember meeting this child who had this deformed face from Flodminamide when he was a child. And I was face to face with this boy. And I remember being so terrified and I couldn't even talk. And uh, that boy had felt so bad and his mother grabbed him and pulled him away and, and said, let's just go home. And that memory had haunted me my whole life that I had done something wrong to that little boy. And I remember when that rain and that lightning was you know, flashing and all of that was going on in that room. It was kind of like a, this little boy's face had kind of like a hologram had pushed through that window and even he was facing me. Look what you had done to me. It was you that made me feel so bad about myself. All those things were happening and raging and all of a sudden my heart had gone into tachycardia. Tachycardia is when the heart goes into this erratic rhythm and the heart already weakened and I was barely alive as it, as it was. And there goes my heart again, you know, it's in this erratic rhythm. But I just released myself. I remember crying out, do with me what you will. And in that moment, I found myself standing in the middle of nowhere. It was inexplicable. I thought to myself, you know, how can this be happening? I found myself inside this timeless place, kind of like this vacuum of sorts. And I think the best way to try to explain this, it's kind of like when you're flying on an airplane, you know, you're, you're looking out an airplane window and it's clear blue sky, you could see everything, but you're really seeing nothing. And that's what it was like. And yet it was as if I was connected to the vast wisdom of the universe, all of it without words. It was almost as if the grains of my being were made of sand, you know, and somebody picked me up and just threw the grains of my being into this wind and scattered me across this infinite timeless expanse. There I was standing there and I could see myself down in my hospital bed in my green hospital gown connected to the heart pump, keeping me alive with the IV bags coming out of me. And yet at the same time, I could see this hologram 
of my body standing in the middle of nowhere in the same hospital gown, but I was, I was whole. And I remember feeling disappointed because I did not see any divine being. My parents didn't come to meet me. I didn't hear any music. There were no angels. But what did happen was God expressed concepts upon me that I wholly understood in that place. Concepts like, I am omnipotent. This is the divine source. I am the power behind all things. This is your real identity. Those were the concepts that were expressed to me. And I knew in that moment that somehow that veil had been pulled back and I was in some kind of place that I call them the ethereal, connected to the vast wisdom of the universe, all of it without words. And this peace came on me that is just inexplicable. And there I was. And it was kind of like communication was telepathic and synchronistic. If I wanted to know the answer to anything, all I had to do was think about it. And it was kind of like it was felt and then absorbed. And with each insight revealed, I thought, wow, this is how it works. Of course, it's really, really simple. And it was like these uh, mathematical equations were just hanging all around me. And I thought, the universe, the way it works, it's so elegant and simple. It's only humans that have made it so difficult to understand. And I knew everything in that place. And it was just beautiful to be floating around seeing all of this, you know. And then it's very difficult to explain this piece, but I'm going to try to articulate it. It was then that I became part of and saw this gigantic web made of twinkling lights. The only way that I can explain this web and what it looked like is that it looked like it was made of trillions and trillions of neurons. And this web just seemed to extend out into infinity. And I was part of it. It was made of all of these sparks of light or twinkling lights. And I knew in that moment that each one of these lights that was inside the nucleus represented a life. And I was told in that place that that quark was how God creates. And I knew that God, love, and light were one. And these quarks are the smallest building blocks of matter. And quarks combine to create infinite possibilities in the universe. They could become a tree, a person, a dog, or a planet. And then it hit me. God uses light to create, transform, and heal us. So stripped down to our essence, we're made of light. Everything is made of light. I knew in that place, we're all made of the same stuff, whether it's animate or inanimate objects, we're all connected. We're all one. That was so amazing to me to be connected to everything. And I thought, if I hurt myself, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I love, the light will spread, illuminating the path for others. And it was there that I realized that loneliness is just an illusion, even here in the physical temporal world. 
How can we be lonely when we're connected to everything? But of course, we can't see that in the physical realm. And I began to see nurses coming in and out of patients' rooms. And I found it curious that I was only seeing nurses that I had made negative assumptions about. I had thought that I had evolved past judgment from you know, all the things that I've been through in my life. But there I was seeing these nurses and all of a sudden their lives were shown to me like on multiple television screens. And their lives were being shown to me in a regression of events. I guess the best way to explain this is how a cartoonist makes cartoons. You know, a cartoonist will draw every movement of a character and then flip those pages at high speed to create movement. And that's what it was like. So their lives were going backwards in this regression of events. And every time something happened, like a violent event or abuse or a watershed event in their lives, uh, circumstances out of their control, an accident or a bad personal choice, that film would stop for a millisecond to give me a picture of what had happened in that person's life. And I realized that it was painting a portrait of what that person had become and why. And I remember standing there looking at this thinking, how could I have ever judged these people so harshly? And then I was giving a life review of my own life, the things that I was most ashamed of and the mistakes that I have made. And let me tell you, having a special needs child and thinking about my own mistakes, heavy burdens, heavy burdens that I had to carry around. There were times in Maria's darkest times where I had prayed for God to take her, both for her to stop the suffering and selfishly for, you know, for me and my wife. And, I'm, and these were heavy things that I had to carry around. And then I forgave myself. And in that moment of forgiveness, there came Maria. Here she was, standing in the middle of nowhere. She came out of that web where we were all connected. And she's standing there, perfect and whole. And she had this light coming through her eyes. It's not the kind of light we see in the natural world. It was kind of like that light that I saw in my crib. It was that light that animates all life, that spiritual light. And there she was, standing in the middle of nowhere. She wasn't wringing her hands. She was perfect and whole, beautiful. In the ethereal, there was no language. Like I said, it was kind of like communication. It was kind of like telepathic and synchronistic. And I started having a conversation with her in this unspoken language. And I said to her, Maria, I've never heard your voice. You know, I've, I, I don't know what your personality's like. I've never heard you say, I love you, Daddy. Your mother and I have taken you everywhere to try to find a cure. We don't know what to do for you anymore. When you're suffering, when you're having seizures. I said, just, just tell me what to do. And in that unspoken language, she said three words to me that transformed my life. She said, just love me. And when she said, just love me, I cried out in that uh, ethereal space. And I said, uh, I never, I never want to leave this place. 
And when I cried out into that space, I heard my own voice echo back to me. I never want to leave this place. And it was then that I found myself back in my hospital bed. And there I was laying there in my broken body, trying to remember what happened. I had no pain in the ethereal. I didn't feel anything there except that peace and love and wholeness. But when I came back into my body, it was, I had that sense, of course, I can hear the new pulse pumping my heart and had that the same old pain and suffering that I had been going through. But when that experience had ended and I was laying there in my bed, trying to grapple with what happened, most of those details that I had remembered in that ethereal space were already leaving me. I don't know how by some spiritual osmosis that I knew everything when I was there. And then here I am back in my broken atrophied body and I couldn't remember details, but I never forget thinking, I really don't care now if I get a heart, I could care less. I wanted to be back there connected to everything in that beautiful love and light of God. I wanted to see my daughter whole again and perfect and I could have cared less, but I knew too that I was sent back for a reason. I had to help get my daughter and, and my wife safely to the other side. But when that experience had ended and I was laying there in my bed, I remember wondering why this all happened to me. You know, my life had flashed before me from the time that my father died, the glowing orb came to me in the crib, Maria's birth, having a massive heart attack, dying, almost making it to transplant, all these things happening to me, seeing my daughter perfect and whole in the spiritual realm, finally convinced that God did exist. And there I was, and I'm asking myself these questions. And much like I heard Frosty's voice, and much like I had those imprints of spirit telling me, you know, those concepts, I am omnipotent, this is your real identity, all those things that were happening to me. I had asked the question, you know, why am I here? And there was that voice again. I heard one word, testify. And it was shortly after that, that my heart came and I was transplanted. I made medical history twice, actually. I made medical history with the new pulse and I made medical history with creating a new category for men with prostate cancer to get transplanted because what happened was is that eventually my doctor was able to get an exception from the government to transplant me with the agreement that the prostate would be taken out after my heart transplant. So I signed the paperwork to get that done and I was transplanted. But when you're transplanted, you have to live near the hospital for a year because they're responsible for your health. You have to have testing almost every week because the heart is very, very uh, susceptible to rejection or infection. So when I was in Chicago, living in that apartment by myself for a year, of course, my wife would come when she could to visit me. But I had gone through this really bad depression because here I was, you know, back in this physical world, this temporal world, 
And I was constantly grappling with the beauty and the love and the light and being connected to everything in that spiritual realm and seeing my daughter perfect and whole. And then here I am back in this world. And even though I knew I had a mission, it was very, very difficult for me. And I began this process of meditating every morning and trying to metaphorically, so to speak, you know, climb that ladder back up into the that ethereal place, that spiritual realm and become connected to everything. And every morning I would fail miserably. I would come like crashing down, you know, and I was getting more and more depressed. But one day my boss called me. He said, hey, I want to come over with my pastor, this guy, Pastor Man, and uh, talk to you. So he came over one Sunday and I was, uh, I was sitting outside on the porch, I'll never forget. And this um, Chinese man comes running up the porch, you know, he sits down beside me and I felt very safe in that moment because I was able to talk to this man about things that I hadn't been able to talk to anybody about. And I began to tell him that I felt really, really guilty. That was part of my depression. I felt guilty for getting a heart. There were people on my floor that had passed away and didn't get a heart. People younger than me. I didn't want to be here. I wanted to be back in, in that spiritual realm. And yet I knew I had to take care of my family and was going through a very difficult period. And the most important thing I expressed to him was I told him, I said, you know, Pastor Man, I don't know where I belong. And he said to me, you don't know where you belong because you got too fat having been fed too much in the spiritual realm. And he said to get skinny again, I want you to give back to God while you're here on earth by serving others and learning to see the divine in everything because you don't have to leave the earth to experience the divine. And it hit me in that moment what he was saying. So after he left, I went for a walk. And when I was younger, I used to walk through the woods when I was jogging and I used to pull leaves off of trees and I would squeeze them, you know, and silly things you do as a child and, you know, say, I, I want your energy to help me jog longer, you know, and then I would let the leaves go. And I found myself back in that childlike state and I began to pull leaves off of trees and look at the moss and the trees and other people. And I began to see that light in everyone like I did in the ethereal began to see that love and light and how we were all connected. And I finally understood that even though it could be difficult here, when we realize that we're all connected and we all come from that same place, that divine love and light of God, we'll find peace within ourselves and peace within our world. And that's how we light up the world. And that's how we deal with living in this physical realm. And I remember thinking that I got to go back to work at some point. And being in the steel industry, I'm in a very conservative business. And even though I knew that I was brought back to testify and some of the doctors I had told about my experience really encouraged me to write the book, I thought all of my clients in the steel industry, you know, very conservative, mature industry, they're going to think I'm crazy. I'm going to lose my job. I'm not going to be able uh, to go back to work, take care of my family, all of this stuff. So 
for the first year or so, I privately researched all of the things that I had experienced, but then it took me three years to write my book because I wasn't sure that people would believe it and what would my customers think. But curiously, when it was published, and it didn't take long for my clients and company and everyone to find out about it and read it, the exact opposite happened. I remember going to see clients that, you know, I thought were ultra conservative people that would never, ever share an experience with me. But I found people opening up to me and wanting to share experiences with me that they privately had and felt and never were able to really feel comfortable in a trusted space of talking to any anybody about. So here I found myself going to visit clients and you know, they would shut the door and say, hey, Rob, before we talk about business, I got to tell you something. <laughs> it was really cool to have them tell me about their own personal experiences. And I was astounded to find out how many people have had spiritual experiences that they have tucked away their whole lives and have never felt comfortable talking about. And then, you know, it struck me, why would anybody find this to be something that was out of the ordinary. After all, we're spiritual beings first having a human experience. And before I had this experience, my faith was um, more like an insurance policy. Hey, I wanted to believe in something just in case, uh, you know, I die and I want to make sure that I go to heaven. But after this experience, now I know. I know my real identity and the real identity of everyone else. I know my identity comes from divine intelligence. It comes from God. I no longer have to be convinced. Now I know the truth. And once you know the truth, you know, the truth is freedom. And my intuition has also, and my empathy, both of those have increased because now that I realize, you know, we all have this uh, intuition Sometimes we believe in it, and then sometimes we don't, we, we doubt. But after understanding how the heart energy works, and that when the heart and the brain are kind of like in coherence when they're working together, our intuition, this gut, whatever you want to call it, is really where the magic happens in our life. It's where the muse comes from. It's where the divine expresses through us. This is where I learned that God both experiences and expresses through us, through creations. It's the only way it could be designed. That's how the divine intelligence experiences life, through us, through the creations. And being that we're all one and everything is created from the same recipe, you know, this is how we learn to express through this love and light of this intelligence, this God intelligence that we all come from. You know, I do, even though this experience stays with me, it's so rich. I mean, this happened seven years ago and it's like it happened yesterday, but there are times because we're human, you know, and there are times that certainly I want to go back to that place. It's difficult. I find myself meditating more and more 
and trying to connect with that place. And after Pastor Man taught me that, you know, there are ways that we can connect with that divine intelligence. One of the most important ways is by serving others, by connecting with nature, by, you know, doing those things. That's, that's how I reconnect. But yes, it's difficult to continue sometimes when we see horrible things happen in the world and we question why these things are happening. You know, how can that be when things are so beautiful and perfect in that ethereal, in that spiritual realm? But here's what I've come to understand. This web that I saw, it's a reflection of the light and dark struggle that all of humanity deals with from the beginning of time. So what my experience has taught me is that what we do here is a reflection of that spiritual life and vice versa. It's almost as if when I was in that web, there were dark parts of the web that I saw. There were some lights that weren't emanating as bright as others. That's where we're not allowing this love and light of the divine to shine through us. So I used to think that, oh, what are those dark parts of the web? Is that evil or what is that? No, I've come to understand it's just not where we're allowing this, this divine love and light to express through us fully. And God is obvious in life when you understand that it's all about free will. It's a choice. That's why what we do matters and that's why this reflection, I think, of what we do here is reflected in this web and back. And, you know, that's how, it, that's how it works. They work in tandem, I believe, because that's where we see how God is obvious. Because I think that we're all born good and we're all born with a moral compass. And one of the doctors that I'm really good friends with, um, actually the cardiologist that came in that night to save my life, Dr. Bajwa, he's a Sikh. You know, the Sikhs believe that we're all born good. And I believe that because as I researched, there's a chapter in my book entitled All One, because I wanted to, in my quest to, to figure out this common thread that is woven through all world religions, because I had Hindus and Sikhs and Christians and Jews and Muslims and all of these different world religions, they were all part of my journey. And I wanted to know, what is it that, you know, binds us all together like the web? What's the common thread that has woven through all of these people? And it's love in its purest form. It's love. And that's why I've come to understand that God is love and light. That's where purpose comes in, in our lives. And we learn purpose by serving others and understanding how we're all connected in this web. But I don't think that unconditional love is easy because you can't let somebody off the hook either. I mean, we have to be responsible for our own actions. That's clear. But we also have to try to understand what it is that has driven that person to do such a bad thing. Just like when I saw those nurses and, you know, the regression of events in their lives and what had happened was painting a, a portrait of why they had become who they were. And it's very difficult for us 
on the surface, when something tragic happens, to look at someone and say, okay, yeah, all right, I understand that these things happen to you in your life, but why did you do this? And those are questions that are still unanswered. Those are difficult things that I certainly don't have the answer for. But if we can learn to be a little more tolerant, I think, and to try to look a little bit deeper into the circumstances of one's life, maybe it'll help us understand and maybe it'll, it'll bring us to a point where it's easier to forgive. But certainly that person has to be held accountable for their own actions. I see us going through a very difficult period now in this country. Instead of being pulled together like we were in that web that I saw, you know, I see us being now more and more factions breaking off and people becoming more isolated and angry. So there's so much pressure on society here now. But in my opinion, who we really are is divine intelligence being expressed through physical form. We all come from the same place. We come from this place of divine energy. We're all bound together, made from the same stuff. We're all connected. And if we understood that, we can almost accomplish anything, especially together, instead of apart. And that's the message that I received in the web. That's what it was, that we're bound together connected by this web of God's love and light, and we all come from the same place. And can you imagine the power of that unity, that message of unity, what we can accomplish together on this planet? It's unlimited. So we have to find a way to get there, to save ourselves. <laughs>